Hi, this is State Delegate Janelle Wilkins from District 20 in Montgomery County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy. The Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. And Michael, over the next few weeks, we're going to hear from each member of the MAKO policy team on the biggest issues heading into the 2023 legislative session. Our policy team has unique policy portfolios that cover everything from parks and rec to public safety to public education all across the board. And today, Brianna January is joining us to kick things off. Brianna, thank you so much for being with us. And can you please remind our listeners, what are the kind of things in your policy portfolio? And that'll sort of set the stage for today, I think. Yeah, happy to be back on. Um, So I cover all things education, um, of course, with the main focus on funding and school construction, capital projects, things like that. Um, I also cover our labor and human resources portfolio. I do a bit of business affairs, public works, and some smaller areas like our local management boards. Good stuff. And I mean, yeah, big picture here, the weather's starting to get cold. There's a little nip in the air. So if you're an Annapolis-focused policy nerd like us, that means it's getting close to legislative session time. And we've been talking about the election and new leadership and so forth, all of whom are going to be descending upon Annapolis in January. But the, the General Assembly will gavel in in January and take up all manner of these issues. So this is the right time of year for us to try and do a run through of each of our colleagues' portfolios and talk about what's timely, interesting, what we see around the bend and that sort of stuff. I think that's a good way to tee things up for our listeners heading into 2023. So, uh, so, so Brianna, you, you, you started talking about your, your portfolio with education and that seems like the easiest place to start. Um, it seems like like school staffing and personnel is is the really hot button issue that that is is really grabbing a lot of attentions. We'll we'll get into to budgeting and school funding and so forth, but like hiring in the school system, wow! I mean, I'm seeing in the newspaper and in media and so forth all over the place. So that's got to be on a lot of people's minds, right? Including legislators, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about it here before on the podcast and somewhat on the blog as well, but. You almost can't go a week in the school year so far without hearing about some sort of school personnel need. Um, so it's it's definitely a challenge that's still ongoing. We, we've seen it since really the COVID pandemic started, but it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Right. And, and Brianna, I mean, this is across the board, right? Can you remind us of, of what kind of folks we're talking about here when we talk about school personnel? I'm sure a lot of people remember and heard about the bus driver shortage, and and that was a big deal. I've seen counties and local boards of education giving out bonuses to staff. I mean, is this Mm -hmm. just across the board, or are you talking about any specific uh, kind of personnel when it comes to schools? Yeah, no, we're talking about everyone that works in a school setting, basically. You name the position, and there's a shortage. Um, You know, we're, we're talking about everyone from the school bus drivers, like you just mentioned, to actual teaching professionals, to aides in classrooms, even down to our kitchen and custodial staff, it just seems like it's really difficult for all local education agencies to hire and retain right now. 
um, between the shift in the workplace conditions and, and the job force, but also I think some folks just decided that it wasn't worth coming back, um, you know, and maybe exposing themselves to to COVID or other workplace conditions that they weren't um, so thrilled with. It, it seems to me that this is sort of exposing one of the areas where the public sector is more like the ocean liner than the speedboat, and it takes mm-hmm. a while to do course corrections. So, you know, we seem to be in this really peculiar labor market, and you know, people have seen indications of this all over the place that, you know, the, the retail store nearby is having trouble filling up with staff and, and, you know, they put signs out front saying, you know, sorry for longer than usual lines. We're just having trouble getting people to, to stock the shelves and service cashiers and so forth. And the same sort of thing in food service. I mean, we've gotten kind of used to. Yeah. So, but if you're, you know, if, if you're, Burger King, you can just sort of decide, well, okay, let's run an ad and offer 18 bucks an hour instead of 11 bucks an hour or whatever we used to be, right? You can do that relatively quickly. The public sector is kind of laden with these long-term decisions, multi-year union contracts. um, A lot of education is basically funded through formulas and through governmental actors, through year-long budgets. It's really difficult to pivot in the moment and just sort of say, okay, well, if, if no one wanted that job at 54,000, let's offer it at 67,000. It's tougher to do that in the public sector than it might be in the private sector. I'm not, I don't mean that as an excuse, but it's something, something of an observation and, and explanation for where we are, I think. No, that's exactly right. And then adding another layer of complexity onto that is, is that, you know, local government in particular is already relooking at our budgets in light of the blueprint. We're relooking at how we're allocating resources and professional development and things like that. Um, and now to do so in really a completely different um, workforce and labor market than we expected to when the blueprint was um, designed and negotiated. So um, it's actually really interesting. You know, we aren't the only ones who are talking about this issue. The the very professional and completely nonpartisan Department of Legislative Services have even taken note on school shortages, school staffing shortages, excuse me, um, in their recent mm-hmm. 2022 issues papers. And so, you know, they're really, we can think of that as kind of the canary in the coal mine, right? For a professional mm-hmm. staff to say, this is an issue statewide. And they found that there's really about 2,000 positions all over the state that are going um, unfulfilled right now in our schools, which when you account for the fact that that is only about 3.2% of all teacher positions, um, it's actually quite significant, 2,000 over just 24 jurisdictions. Um, and so even DLS acknowledged in, in that recent publication that um, locals are doing a lot to, to try to hire between bonuses and um, extra steps, increases, colas, things like that. Um, but they really acknowledged that While the blueprint is starting to be implemented and it does have components on recruitment and retaining and training professional staff, uh, they really say that that it looks like there needs to be some additional actions from the state. So that's where I'm turning for January for sure. Yeah. And and when we look when you look at those reports from legislative services, you know, they want to do this with data in hand, and that means there's generally going to be a lag. So they're mostly doing their analysis based on where we left off last school year. Right. And, you know, if you've been reading the headlines from the last several weeks, 
you know, the kickoff to this school year in, in September, October, November of 22, um, has been accompanied with folks who just didn't show up for roles that they were expected to fill and, and, you know, things that are still standing open now. So, I mean, this is, this is still getting attention into the school year and it's on an awful lot of people's minds. I think, you know, our, our listeners know that school personnel issues were a big part of the Kerwin Commission deliberations and ultimately what turned into the legislation, the, you know, the blueprint for Maryland legislation that we're in the middle of, of, of working toward. Um, but, you know, since then, times have definitely been changing. Those, those recommendations that were sort of built on an analysis of the costs in schools from a point in time that now feels like an eternity ago, right? You, you got, you take a look at 2017 mm-hmm. or 2018, you run the numbers on what it costs. A different world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. You know, we, we, we jokingly kind of talk about, well, that's in the before times. And like, there's, there's, there's a reality there that you do that analysis in good faith and you say, well, we're going to project some cost of living changes onto that, but that may be more abrupt then you can build into a formula or a report or even a piece of legislation. So it does feel like there's a role for the state to step in with, you know, with, with, with something, with some, uh, you know, resources or some kind of realignment and say, we, we may have missed the mark in some regards. Um, maybe we have the opportunity to, to, to remedy that. I think that feels like it's, it's, it's uh, potentially on tap. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you would think so, right? We're closing, well, we closed out last year with over a two billion surplus, um, which is really well and widely known. Um, and we do have a new wave of, of leadership coming into Annapolis at all levels between the legislature, the new gubernatorial administration, even a new comptroller. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't be shocked, that's for sure, if a plan does come together to try to build up some sort of response to these problems. It's on everyone's mind. Um, the locals, the state alike, and of course, all of the, the advocacy groups as well. And Michael, something um, that I wanted to just mention as you were talking about kind of the before times, I'm hearing from locals that it's it's really hitting everything. It's not just the personnel and, you know, the increased cost for capital projects and construction, but even down to the food supply that we're using in our schools and um, inflation really hitting that and supply chain issues. We started the new school year with some districts really struggling to to get healthy and, and quality foods um, ready to go for students. So it's all complicated and it's all just completely different from where the blueprint was um, envisioning we'd be at this time. Yeah. And I'm sure frustrating for the people who worked on the blueprint and like Michael said, in good faith. And, you know, you mentioned the the surplus, but, you know, if you read the headlines, I think that surplus has been spoken for umpteen times at, by this point, right? Like everybody <laughs> wants a piece of that for, for, yeah, for, for, usual. for, for yeah, for good things. Right. But certainly this is a problem. And, um, you know, rethinking Kerwin, realigning the blueprint. I'm, I'm sure that that that's a, a trauma response for some people, uh, listeners to this podcast to to have to relitigate some of this. But I guess, Brianna, like I agree, I think that the state surplus should play into this. It should be a big part of these adjustments moving forward. But when it comes to, you know, the the, the bigger picture here than just the staffing crisis, we're still amidst the ramp up for the Kerwin blueprint. So just looking at the numbers and what DLS is projecting and what the state is projecting moving forward, what does state aid for public schools look like in the next fiscal year, staffing shortages aside? 
Yeah, so DLS is projecting that state aid, so that's state money coming directly to our local public schools, will increase by just under 5%. I believe it was 4.9% in the next fiscal year, totaling about $8.3 billion. And DLS is expecting 7.6 of that to go directly to the local school systems. That sounds great. We're ready for it, for sure. Um, however, you know, a lot of that really has already been earmarked. It's, as DLS noted, this increase is directly related to um, increased enrollment in some areas, increased projected costs related to personnel and inflation, and kind of just meeting um, where we are right now in, in Maryland's economy and needs. And so um, there's also a level there that DLS notes that some of it's also mandated through the blueprint for the expansion of full day pre-K, which we could spend an entire podcast on um, discussing, and maybe we will at some point. Uh, but, you know, this sounds great, and I'm sure that people are going to be excited about this increase, but it is really already earmarked. I, I think one of the question marks that's built into where we are as we forecast what next year looks like for state aid for education, and and along with it, what the obligations are for the counties to do their share is this whole thing is built on student enrollment, right? So all of those formulas are expressed basically in terms of dollars per student is what it takes to do this program and that program and the other thing. And so, so the foundation of everything is basically how many students are in your school system for the state to then say, okay, then, you know, the, the share of your funds is going to be this, this many, you know, this many total dollars. Uh, what's weird is we count the kids in the fall and for two years running, we felt like the student count in the fall of 2020, well, all these, all these kids are, are online and, and not necessarily registered or attending at the right time or at the right day or whatever. And so we had a depression in the student count in fall of 2020. Legislature more or less said, that that feels like an aberration. We shouldn't overreact to that and like sort of shrink all of our school funding. And most stakeholders, including county, said, let's find a reasonable way to do that with some hold harmless and formula changes. They ended up doing the same thing in, in the 22 session last year in response to what felt like a still weird number in the fall of 21. I'm not sure that the the numbers have rebounded all the way to where we thought we'd be at, at, if we're back to normal today in school attendance, uh, some of the jurisdictions are still several percent below where they were, right? And that's like that, that could make this whole bridge feel a little bit rickety and projecting the cash. Yeah, that's exactly right. And while, you know, while we do have one or two outliers that have actually increased enrollment, um, the vast majority still are very um, leery about what their enrollment count is, and they're still worried um, to the point where I've even heard a county or two um, indicate that they're starting to approach maybe double digits in enrollment loss, which is really scary um, <laughs> for that very reason that you just explained, Michael, the per pupil funding. Um, so it's very much still an open question whether this will become really a third straight session with a one time patch of some sort. And, of course, we'll have the added layers of um, new leadership, new legislators, and a new administration that has not worked on this patch over. So, and new committee leadership, too, um, particularly in appropriations. So we'll, we'll see what happens, but I think people are still very much aware that it's potentially 
um, still going to be a big thing. Yeah, I think it's it's tough to read with precision. This is you know a combination. There's more here than just the math. There's also the intuition of what the math represents. I mean, if you're in a jurisdiction that in your if your student count from the fall of 2022 is still down five, seven, nine, ten percent from where it was. If we figure maybe the fall of 2019 was the last true count. But, you know, you know, sort of without these 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 weird factors. The before times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but if you're still down seven, eight, ten percent, you're at the point where that reckoning becomes real. I mean, sometimes we talk about if there are one percent fewer students, you don't go off and lay off one out of every hundred teachers, and you don't you sell one of your school buses and stuff. You you you, you right. Kind of have a lot you don't of turn the lights off for an <laughs> hour every day. Right. right <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we we think of these things as fixed costs on the margin about the extra 1% of students or the fine, you know, minus 1% of students. But if you really are, you know, if you're, if your student population used to be 7,000 kids and now it's going to be 6,400 and that's really where you're going to be building from for the next number of years, you do need to rethink scaling and you do need to think, oh, are there things we need to combine or, or whatnot? That's, that becomes a real decision. I still feel like the smart money for at least this one session is if there are some resources available, you probably treat the count as an aberration once again, and then we're back at the table to try and sort out how do you do that with the formulas and with the maintenance of effort expectation on the counties and so forth. So, you know, we've we've done two patchovers. We're capable of doing another one, I suspect. Yeah, and I think you're right, Michael. I think at some point that becomes a concern and you have to wonder at what point is there not a patch over and how does that affect the blueprint and all the, the mandates moving forward that are associated with the blueprint seems like a lot to, to sort out here, but we're going to leave that there for now. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the bricks and mortar part of education and maybe a little bit about adult use cannabis and what it might mean for the workplace, all that and more after the break. Nationwide is a proud platinum partner of the Maryland Association of Counties. Nationwide is a market leader in providing supplemental retirement savings programs for public employees. They have been serving public sector employees and their families for nearly 40 years. Their programs include 457B, 401A, and post-employment health plans, and are comprehensive, incorporating investment, education, and administrative service solutions for governmental employers. Visit www.nrs4u.com or contact Debbie Turner at turned11 at nationwide.com. Retirement representatives are registered representatives of Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Brianna, January, and Michael Sanderson. We are talking through some of Brianna's biggest issues for the upcoming session, stuff that is in her policy portfolios that she thinks are going to be big discussion items as we head into session and then during session. So, Brianna, let's turn to the Capital Debt Affordability Committee. We call it CDAC. I know you're keeping close tabs on uh, CDAC. And, Michael and Brianna, we talked about this recently on the podcast, but remind our listeners why CDAC and ultimately its recommendations are important for county governments to keep an eye on and how it affects county governments moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, CDAC really engages in the process of 
uh, what we like to call reading the economic tea leaves to make a recommendation. Um, it's not only important for what amount they suggest for capital borrowing at the state level, um, but it's also just an indicator of how our leaders, how our um, state economists are really thinking our economy is going. Um, and of course, they forecast not just for the upcoming fiscal year, but they do take a look at fiscal years after as well. So we can really gain a lot from what they're recommending. Right. And boy, does this ever feel like the time where we'd really welcome some input and guidance from those economic indicators and, and folks who follow this stuff closely and, and sort of neutrally to, to say, you know, what, what kind of a market are we in? How stable, um, you know, how stable does the economy feel for our our, our borrowing capacity near term and, and medium term and so forth. So all this stuff feels super important right now just because I don't know how to feel about these forecasts. Um, I'm very. I mean, how many buzzwords? You know, it's exactly what they do. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, there there are some years where this feels very perfunctory that Mm -hmm. that the economy is going just fine and is relatively strong, and everybody knows that. And there are times when the economy feels weak, and everybody knows it's a belt tightening environment, and so you kind of hunker down. I'm not sure there's consensus on that continuum of where the American and Maryland economy are right now. So as much as any time, it feels like this tea leaf reading has an awful lot of value, not just for for floating bonds, but just in general for the economic climate in the public sector. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, doing a little catch up here, but CDAC did meet several times in the fall. Um, They've just wrapped up their recommendations earlier in November. And I mean, bottom line here is that they are recommending a much more conservative course of action than what we've seen in recent years, including during the pandemic. Um, Surely that's in response to our ongoing inflation situation and any sort of economic uncertainty at the national level that um, folks are kind of just holding their breath to see exactly what you said, Michael, which way we're going to lean. But last year, the committee did approve about $900 million for new general obligation authorizations um, for last year's General Assembly to support the upcoming um, fiscal 2023 capital program. The two years before that, we were talking more about uh, a $1.1 to $1.2 billion range. So last year was marginally smaller, but this year um, we're looking at half of a recommendation from what we were um, pre-COVID. So this year they're recommending about $600 million for the upcoming fiscal 24. Um, again, a potential sign that the committee thinks that the state should prepare for some tightening, for some potential uh, more formal economic downturn, if you will. But I'll note that the committee does anticipate that by the following fiscal year in 25 and then 26, that we'll be back up to that $1.1 billion mark. So, you know, a smaller recommendation for, for this upcoming year, but they have not forecasted that that will last. So hmm. to be determined. So I, I feel like we can try and read a little bit into that. Um, in, in my mind, I mean, first of all, the idea that they would recommend a pretty aggressive scaling back of how much borrowing that the state ought to do in the year ahead is a little unusual, right? We, I mean, we're, we're used to seeing, I mean, my recollection is in recent years, we've kind of gotten in this groove where the capital debt affordability committee, which is 
mostly representatives from the executive branch and the administration um, sort of have a have a sort of let's be relatively tight. Let's come in under a billion. The General Assembly has some latitude there. And then the final number ends up being like that, that billion one or billion two, somewhere around those lines. But to, to recommend we go all the way back to like 600 million is a pretty abrupt recommendation. I I feel like this has to be motivated maybe in part by looking at the momentary economy, but it feels like interest rates have to play a role here, that we're in this unusual circumstance. We've been coasting for years with interest rates, generally speaking, being at what would ordinarily be looked at as historic lows, right? I mean, you know, residential mortgage rates around three or three and a half percent and borrowing by institutions like the state of Maryland, even below that, if you're a triple A bond rated state like Maryland, you're considered a really healthy you know, investment risk with your with your uh, with your municipal bonds. Then you know, the state of Maryland has probably been buying has been um, floating loans at, I don't know, probably less than two percent interest rate for, yeah, for the last number right. of years. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Yeah, these days, if you if you go to buy you go to get a, go to buy a home and you need a, a residential mortgage, you're probably looking at six or six and a half percent. This inflationary environment has driven up interest rates. The the Federal Reserve is using that as a tool to try and cool off inflation and so forth. You bundle all that stuff together. If Maryland goes to the bond market, we might be paying four or four and a half percent on our bonds rather than a, a percent and a half or two. That's a big deal. That's that, that that's imp- important and consequential math. It may not sound like a whole lot, but it's a big deal. Yeah, so definitely some signaling going on there. Money is more expensive and potentially some rocky economic times ahead. Or, Michael, they're just worried about interest rates and, and thinking now might not be the ideal time to be borrowing a lot because, again, money is more expensive. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, that that definitely does also impact CDEC's um, recommendations and their kind of outlook for where uh, the state would be for their self-imposed um, outstanding debt ratios. Um, you know, these are limits that they have imposed for the state to maintain a healthy um, bond rating and whatnot. But um, I, I think, as Michael said there, though, that if we do have to go to market and we're actually paying quite higher on our interest for the returns, um, you know, those limitations will also be impacted. And so what does that mean for the long term on um, the health of, of our, our market? And we, we do need to remember, though, right. that these are just recommendations, right? I mean, the General Assembly has a lot of authority on the capital budget to add to this, and it's different, broader flexibility than they have with the ordinary operating budget, right, Michael? So these recommendations, and, and normally legislators, fiscal leaders take these very seriously. We know that, but there is some leeway if the General Assembly decides, hey, this is, you know, we can do more, we have the capacity, but, you know, again, it is certainly usually taken very seriously, these recommendations and, and what CDAC is saying. Yeah, I think specifically when you lay out the math itself, like Maryland has done these two things that we talked in, in more detail about this a, a few weeks ago, but we have two arithmetic limits that we basically say we're keeping an eye on these things as limits. And one of them is basically about the amount of debt outstanding, tax-supported debt out there. And the other is about how big is our annual debt service payment relative to our our overall budget or overall revenues and so forth. Seems to me it's the latter of those two that's moving into play more. If we're going to be paying 4% 
on general obligation bonds. And if that sticks around, if we're in this kind of interest rate environment for the next four, five, six, eight years, then debt service getting closer to that, that limit is going to itself be the more powerful indicator, I think. Um, so I think, I just think it's, that's kind of a shift in the mentality, but, um, these are recommendations. They're useful for trying to follow the bouncing ball. It's not like the, the die is cast and this debate is over. It'll still be a live and, and healthy, robust discussion when the General Assembly you know, gavels in, takes up the budget, and starts getting focusing on the, on the capital side. Right. So, Brianna, we've talked about school issues, including, you know, the potential for some adjustments with enrollment. We've talked about uh, some of the capital costs and school construction. We know that there are still issues there with inflation, with supply chain issues. And we know that school personnel is obviously a big concern. CDAC and, and our debt capacity. There is one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's it's a big issue. It's getting a lot of press, but not necessarily in the way that I want to ask. And it's cannabis. Right. And, and what I want to get mm-hmm. to is what the counties are thinking uh, regarding what kind of ramifications legalizing adult use cannabis has for personnel. We know that we have a lot of personnel that are out on the roadways, they're operating heavy equipment. And so uh, this has to be on the minds of our HR folks. You staff that affiliate for MAKO, you are the liaison. So I'm sure this is something that's coming up. Any insights in, into what the landscape is right now in terms of counties across the board and, and what they're thinking this means for their personnel? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is definitely on the mind of all 24 county governments and their heads of, of HR. Um, I'm personally working very closely with them on modernizing policies, on considering um, even the timeline, the likely timeline for legalization and how that um, impacts uh, HR benefits and, and labor, especially um, as we consider, and I think it's really important to remember that just like our schools, like we just discussed, county governments are also really struggling to hire and retain professional staff. So um, they're looking at this both as a potential opportunity to to modernize policy and to um, better recruit some folks, but it's also just a real challenge in terms of just the the legal restraints that we have um, as public service employers. And so, as you mentioned, Kevin, you know, we employ a lot of frontline service folks who um, just simply will have to have an exemption even with legalization. You know, whether you're driving a, a large public works truck or you are fire or uh, police um, or teachers, for that matter, potentially. Um, so it's it's really interesting. I've I've seen our county HR folks um, grappling with the issue for over a year now, as we knew that a referendum was likely, um, and they're really starting to consider seriously what it means. And and we've had some folks already kind of modernizing their um, policies on on both pre-employment as well as during employment testing and regulating. Um, of substances and others are really just they're sponges right now and they're just um, learning a lot from each other learning a lot from uh, other neighboring states and jurisdictions that have done this um, so it's a lot going on for sure it's going to continue to be a topic that I'm paying close attention to and working with all of our counties on um, but I'll, I'll also note that uh, listeners should really plan to attend our panel 
um, during winter conference, we're doing a panel on really several complexities of the modern workplace. And this is one component. Um, so if, if they want to get into the weeds on this particular issue, oh, they oh, should join us. Oh, <laughs> they should join us at winter conference um, just next month, actually. Yes, and that, that is coming up, and I'll give it a plug. Uh, Mako's Winter Conference, the theme is Hit the Ground Running. It's at the Hyatt Regency Chesapeake Bay Hotel in Cambridge, Maryland, from January 4th through the 6th, with a pre-conference orientation for new county elected officials on January 3rd. I agree. I'm looking forward to that panel. This conference is going to be massive. We have a lot of new state legislators and local elected officials, and we really are going to hit the ground running with this one, and, and the content looks great. So I'm excited about that. Michael, any closing thoughts from you or you, Brianna, before we wrap this up today? I thought this was a good way to kick off our little series here on what we're looking uh, forward to in the in the 2023 General Assembly. But any closing thoughts from either one of you? I feel this session's wide open for any of these topics that we've just done a quick run through to turn into like top tier attention grabbing, lots of effort and, and lots of energy expended, not just by counties as stakeholders, but by everybody who's invested in public education or in the capital budget. I think all of this stuff um, potentially could be part of the, like the central ring of the multi ring circus. Um, fiscal stuff is going to be fascinating, and this weird environment we're in is going to drive it to be even more interesting than an ordinary year with new leadership and so forth. So I think I think this is like first year stuff. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think my only closing thought is that I can't believe that we're already um, down to I think it's forty or forty one days now until session, and so ah. all of all, I know all of what we have talked about is going to really start to come into focus in the coming weeks for sure. No doubt about it, and we will leave it there for today. Please check the show notes for a lot of additional information on stuff we've already talked about today. There will be links for you there, including the Winter Conference and including back a few episodes when we talked about CDAC. We'll have all that for you in the show notes. But as always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, our Conduit Street blog. But for Brianna January, for Michael Sanderson, and for our wonderful producer, Victoria Moss, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.